Hey friends, have you been blessed or encouraged or challenged by Theology in the Raw? If so, would you consider joining Theology in the Raw's Patreon community? For as little as five bucks a month, you can gain access to a diverse group of Jesus followers who are committed to thinking deeply, loving widely, and having curious conversations with thoughtful people. We have several membership tiers where we where you can receive premium content. For instance, silver level supporters get to ask and vote on the questions for our monthly Patreon only podcast. They also get to see like written drafts of various projects and books I'm working on. And there's other perks for that tier. Gold level supporters get all of this and access to monthly Zoom chats where we basically blow the doors open on any topic they want to discuss. My patrons play a vital role in nurturing the mission of Theology Nara. And for me, just personally, interacting with my Patreon supporters has become one of the hidden blessings in this podcast ministry. So you can check out all of the info at patreon.com forward slash Theology Nara. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology Nara. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. Ben Lowe. Ben is originally from Singapore, currently serves as the Deputy Executive Director at Arasha International, a network of faith-based conservation organizations working in over 20 countries. His undergrad degree is from Wheaton College, and his PhD is in interdisciplinary ecology from the University of Florida. And we had a wonderful, enlightening conversation about all things related to um, the environment, ecology, climate uh, change, and so on and so forth. So uh, please welcome to the show, for the first time, the one and only Dr. Ben Lowe. All right. Hey, Ben. Thanks so much for being on Theology in the Raw. We got connected because uh, my publisher, Michael Covington from Baby C. Cook, uh, met you all back. Reached out to me and said, dude, you gotta you gotta get to know this guy. And I get that a decent amount, I'll just be honest. Like people, you gotta this, oh, you gotta, you know, talk to this person, talk to that person, and you get several of those a day. And it's like I just I can't <laughs> add it all up. But to be totally honest, I did immediately kind of looked you up and I was like, Oh wow, this both your background and the work you're doing through Arosha just seems really fascinating. So anyway, that's the backstory of why we're here. So give us the background. Who is Ben Lowe and uh, how did you get involved with Arasha? And then I'll have you explain what that ministry does. Yeah, thanks, Preston. It's great to to be here with you. And thanks to Michael, I guess. I hope those aren't all coming from Michael, those suggestions. But About half he was very are. eager yeah. for us to connect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm originally from Singapore uh, in Malaysia. I grew up there. My family moved to the country when I was in my uh, teens. And I got involved in Arasha, which uh, is Portuguese for the rock. It's an organization. It's an international Christian nature conservation organization that works in over 20 countries on six continents. And it started in 1983, so the year before I was born. Wow. <laughs> uh, and I got involved while during my undergraduate at Wheaton College outside of Illinois. We had a student chapter there, and I plugged in. I was studying the sciences at that point, the natural sciences and environmental sciences. Uh, and then many years later, um, uh, and have had different roles with them and am currently on staff at the international office. Okay. Wow. And where, where is the international office? It's based in the UK, okay. but I'm based in Florida in the US. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We have a remote team. What, what turned you on to, and I guess there's lots of different words we can use creation care environmental sure. sciences yeah, theology yeah. of creation whatever however you, i imagine all of those are probably capturing an aspect but what, what turned you on to that that area yeah well i grew up in singapore as i said which is is about 95 percent urbanized and so yeah. somehow within that context of a major world city i just was in love with nature uh, and spent a lot of my time uh my time exploring the rainforest and things like that and the mud flats um, and I was also in love with Christ. And uh, those two themes continued through much of my life, but they weren't really connected. Huh. And so it was only when I uh, came to when I went to Wheaton College and did my undergraduate degree that the courses and the professors I studied with there connected those dots with me. And, and it came from both angles. So 
and the theology courses that we get to take at a school like we being a Christian school, uh, I was learning about the biblical and theological foundations for why we are called to care for God's creation. And then once you start to see it, you start to realize it's everywhere throughout scripture. Yeah. It's just sort of been a blind spot in many of our church spaces, including mine. Uh, and then the the other end of it, of course, is uh, in the science courses I was taking, we were studying a lot of the major world crises of the day, whether it's water pollution, air pollution, or climate change, or biodiversity extinctions, things like that. And starting to realize that at the heart of a lot of the problems we're trying to grapple with together as a society, uh, it's it's environmental issues, environmental causes, and they require environmental solutions. And so they both kind of came together for me, and I started to realize for the first time in my life, that I could be called to follow Christ and to live for God by doing environmental work. Can you give us a, um, this might be a hard task, <laughs> a two to four minute overview <laughs> of your biblical theology of creation? Like when he said, when you looked at the scriptures, you saw that it was kind of yeah, sure. the, 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 the God wants us to care for his creation is kind of everywhere. Like for somebody who's like, well, I don't know, is it though? How would you just give a, maybe a concise your 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 defense of that claim? <laughs> Two to four minutes. That that is going to be tough. Uh, lots of us have written books on this at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But here's here's sort of what uh, it comes down to for me. When I look at the Bible, you see it starts with creation and it it goes to new creation or mm -hmm. renewed creation, uh, and and everywhere in between it, you see it's not just God's relationship with us, but it's God's relationship with all of creation, the world that God made, the, which is the work, literally the work of God's hands. We are, but so is everything else. Uh, and you see God's intention to redeem it and to restore it from the sin and the death and the brokenness uh, that was introduced through the fall. And so we see, you know, and again, two to four minutes. So this is what yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. skipping over so much. But you look at passages like Romans 8, where it writes about all creation groaning, waiting for the revelation of the children of God. Uh, so that it can share in the liberation from sin and death along with us. And you read passages of Apostle Paul writing in Colossians 1, where Christ is the image of the uh, invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And it goes on and it writes that through God, through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So we see that the Apostle Paul is clear there, and it's consistent with the rest of the testimony of Scripture that the cross is for all of the fall. Hmm. So the same all things that Christ creates are the same all things that Christ sustains and are the very same all things that Christ is reconciling to himself through his blood shed on the cross. And we get to be part of that ministry of reconciliation. In Genesis uh, 1, it talks about humans being created distinct from the rest of creation and that we are the image bearers of God. And so we're called to represent God and God's mission and God's vision and God's kingdom in the world. And that's a call that we still get to carry as the church today. Here's what I would boil it down to, though. When Jesus was asked what the most important thing was, Multiple times uh, recorded, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second most important thing is like the first is to love your neighbor as yourself. I can't live faithfully in the world as it is today and love God without caring for the world that he made, that he sustains, and that is part of his purposes. And the same is, is true for the second. I can't claim to love my neighbor without caring for the environment and all the environmental problems that impact so many people in my community and around the world today. How's that? Is That's that within good. four minutes? No, I, was, I, I didn't have a stopwatch, but I think you came in just on <laughs> or maybe just over three minutes. That was that was really good. I mean, I was hoping you were going to – yeah, Romans 8 to me was kind of like the lights came on when, um, when I really – looked at that passage, which doesn't take a long time to look at. It's crystal clear. But even there, like the, the redemption of creation is is compared, is tethered to the redemption of our bodies. So in as much mm -hmm. as the resurrection mm -hmm. of our bodies is a big theological theme, which it is, kind of <laughs> flows right from the resurrection of Jesus. It's just tethered to this resurrection of creation, if you will. Um, have you, here's a, here's a theolog, and then you see, I mean, also all throughout the Psalms too, you know. Sure. It's just the worship of God is so tethered to creation, singing God's praises, you know, and it's like, I think it's more than just an analogy. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, I think he's, when he taps into themes of redemption, I think God just often has a really wide angle lens on what redemption mm -hmm. looks like. Um, mm -hmm. 
what do you do? I'm curious if you work through kind of the um, Second Peter three passage, or you know, the debate about you know, will will God renew this creation or destroy this creation and create a whole new world? I don't think at the end of the day. Well, maybe it matters. At the end of the day, he cares about creation, whether it's he's giving this one a facelift or creating a new one. Then even if the new one replaces the old, it's still rooted in this idea that the old creation was good and it needed a, in need of redemption. But I've always been, I mean, that passage, uh, some translations, and I know there's some translation difficulties there, but this is the one where God's going to dissolve the elements with fervent heat. And right. just seems. I think that's where some Christians get this idea of, well, if you think creation's suffering now, what do we see what God does with it? I don't know. I grew up with that kind of like God's mm-hmm. gonna, God's mm-hmm. the ultimate destroyer of creation, you know, but it's all rooted, I think, in that passage because I don't know where else they'd get that idea from. But um, yeah. yeah, have you had to work through that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I and I do hear that uh, in some of the spaces that okay. uh, I work in worship. Uh, and it can be a very sincere question. You know, what do we do with tough sure. passages like this? It's certainly not the only tough passage in scripture. Uh, and you probably worked through a lot of the others. Well, in this case, I think it's really telling um, that it, it, if you if you step back from that particular passage, it, it includes the phrase, as in the days of Noah, when the earth was covered by the flood. And so what so we're comparing this burning of the earth uh-huh. to the flood and the days of Noah. And what was that? That was a cleansing of the earth. It has a very destructive element, absolutely. But it was ultimately for the purposes of cleansing the earth. And through that, God preserved his creation in a very dramatic fashion by having this uh, this family collect all these animals and, and carry them into the ark. And so, you know, this is this is not me inventing this. This is lots of great theologians throughout the history of the church who have written very persuasively about these passages pointing to the fact that we should be understanding this um, this fire that burns up the earth in uh, as a refining fire. Similarly, as okay. you would take uh, ore and put it into a furnace to burn away the impurities. So that's the image that we're being given here. Again, the idea is that God intends to refine his creation and redeem and restore his creation, not completely do away with it. Okay. And we see that in Revelation, you know, the, the heaven and earth become one. Heaven comes down, the new Jerusalem comes down to earth and God's dwelling place once again becomes, joins with us. God lives among us, among us once again, but it's on this earth. Yeah. I don't know yeah. how to explain how that's going to happen, yeah. but that's the picture that we get. It's beautiful that the last two chapters of the Bible looks a lot like the first two chapters of the Bible. There's so many mm. allusions to Eden and, and the way God originally intended things to be when before sin entered the world. And um, so, yeah, you get this picture of redeeming and completing um, creation, not doing away with it. So so that so you would say even Second Peter three isn't talking about and you know destroying of this creation and bringing in of a new a brand new one but but a, a cleansing of this present creation yeah it doesn't that's what it sounds like <laughs> does that give ethical pressure on i'm trying to find my right words here ethical pressure on the church to be trying to implement that vision now like is that where your theological drive to want to address environmental issues concerns is it rooted in, you know, God's going to finalize this work in the end, but he's invited us to participate in that work now? Or how would you frame, how would you frame that? How, how would you, what does that do for you when you know God's going to ultimately cleanse the earth and, and, and fix things in the end? Well, the first thing it does for me is it gives me hope because these are really tough issues that are beyond any individual even beyond any individual society's ability to address, right? So this is a huge, and they can be very overwhelming. And a lot of people who care about the environment today struggle with despair and mm-hmm. struggle with the grief of all that we are losing that is good from God's creation. And so it gives me hope. It gives me hope because as much as I care about my neighbors and the rest of God's world, I trust that God cares even more about it. God cares so much that God sent God's son down to the earth mm-hmm. to save it. Um, and, and so that gives me a lot of encouragement and it allows me to see the work that I do, the work that Arasha, the organization I'm part of around the world is doing. It's not out of a sense of desperation, although often we are in very desperate situations and we feel that pressure, 
but it's ultimately our work is worship. It's what mm-hmm. we do to bring glory to God. It's what we do to bear witness to God's love for the whole world mm-hmm. and to in, invite other people to join us in being part of God's work, which is a, a kind of mind-boggling invitation when you consider how much damage we're capable of most of the time, <laughs> that God would still invite us to be part of this. And you could say that about uh, about every sort of ministry, of course. Sure, sure, sure. You mentioned in passing a few times now, you know, these environmental concerns, issues, problems. What, okay, let's, and this might open up, we might take the rest of the podcast to kind of work through some of these, but what are some, what are some ones that immediately come to your mind, like really pressing environmental issues or problems that need to be addressed? Um, maybe it's ones that are particularly on your heart or ones that are just more pressing, you know, as a whole. Right. We could take the rest of the, the conversation <laughs> up on this and it would be hard to narrow it down too quickly. But if I were, I would, I would probably focus on, um, on the great extinction crisis that we're in, the loss of species and biodiversity around the world by some rough estimates. It's really hard to get good estimates because there's so much that we we don't know that we've lost, <laughs> that yeah. we are losing. Uh, but by some estimates in my lifetime alone, we've lost about half of life on Earth. That includes species, but it includes also what, what's called the thinning of life. So decreasing populations of species that remain, loss of habitat, all those things. So that's an incredible thing to consider. About half of life on Earth we've lost in my my lifetime alone. Wow. Uh, the second issue that I'd flag, of course, uh, which is impossible to ignore these days, is global climate change. The fact that we've just so disrupted the climate system that our lives, the, our, our um, natural systems, but our human society and systems are designed around that we're experiencing increasingly dramatic changes that we're having to adapt to. So I would probably land on those two to start with. <laughs> let's since since that's that's a hot one. So let's 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 plant our flag here for a little bit. And I, I I feel very confident theologically that Christians should care for creation. To me, that's um, not really debated theologically. But I know hardly anything about the specifics of climate change. When I, when I hear various voices, yeah, yeah. I, I just get more confused because I'm like, what? So I guess let me start here. What are are there anything? anything within the climate change debates that are widely, widely agreed, agreed upon that are not politicized that are not some partisan, whatever, but like, here's something where we can all agree on. And then what are some things that are more debated among good faith, maybe scientists? Yeah, that's a great question. And the science uh, and our knowledge moves very quickly in this field. So for instance, arguments that I grew up hearing in church as a teenager uh, from a science point of view, might have been legitimate questions at that time. Okay. But now, 20 years later, we know so much more. So here's some sort of the headlines on um, on what's going on with global climate change. First of all, it's happening. We can measure the Earth has warmed uh, a little bit over one degree Celsius since the industrial era. Um, the second is that humans are a driving cause of the majority of the warming that we've experienced. And scientists have been able to isolate different factors that can contribute to warming, as well as that can contribute to cooling, and then show that humans really are the defining factor here in the warming that we're experiencing. So you're saying that's not uh, and then, very debated anymore? I thought that was one of the more debated points, but again, I'm, I'm going on minimal knowledge. Right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's so that was one of the more debated points. And as the years have gone on, it's becoming increasingly clear. And so you, you okay. see it tracking not in just the, the news you read or the textbooks that are taught or, or things like that or the reports that come out. But you also see it in terms of the arguments of those who are, um, are, are opposing uh, action to address climate change. So, at, you know, many years ago, it was, well, we thought, how do we know we're not cooling? How do we know we're warming? And then the argument shifted to, well, we might be warming, but humans aren't the problem. And so we really should focus on other issues. And now the, the, the great debates are happening about how much warming is going to happen, how quickly, and what do we do about it? Oh, okay. So that's where a lot of the, I mean, there is still ongoing debate, but I'm very thankful that there is a much greater shared recognition of the problem and where we're at today, including things like the oceans have um, grown about a third more acidic than they they were a few decades ago. And huh. so climate change affects everything. 
Okay. Uh, not not just the temperature of the air or the earth, for instance. You know, if folks want to dig more into this, um, I my research is more in the the human or social dimensions of climate change. So okay. I look at people's attitudes, beliefs, behaviors. But the, there is a a friend of mine named Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, who is out of Texas Tech University. And um, she is her husband's actually a pastor of an evangelical church down in Texas. And she is one of the leading experts in the climate science uh, that we have in the U.S. today. And she's got lots of great resources and has been a very helpful guide for me when I hear questions about the science that I want to I want to know the answers to. She's able to explain them in very helpful, clear ways. That's good. Okay, so one percent Celsius from for for a lay, the layperson like me, right. it, over you know 150 years is like uh, is that that doesn't sound like that big of a deal. What t- can you help unpack? Like what even small degrees in temperature change? What are the ramifications of that? Yeah, sure. Another another great question. So one degree Celsius would be, and again, that was just a rough estimate I gave you. It's okay. more than that, but but it's sort of it's not not that much more yet. That amount of warming is a global average. So some parts of the world are getting cooler. Some parts of the world are getting warmer. Some parts of the world are warming even faster. Okay. So we tend to warm faster at the poles. That leads to a melting of the snow and ice pack at the poles, which leads to some sea level rise depending on where it's melting and where it's flowing. It also leads to positive feedback loops where you have more dark surfaces exposed uh, at the poles that uh, – were previously covered by snow and ice, but now that the land is being increasingly exposed, it heats up faster with the sun, and that increases the the warming and the melting. So it's a very complicated system. And the fact that we're tweaking it, you know, in even small ways overall can lead to major implications in lots of other places, like where I live in Florida, where we know we d- I'm not sure where we're at with understanding the relationship between climate change and the frequency of hurricane formation. But we have lots of good data showing that hurricanes today are forming on sea surface temperatures that are on sea surfaces that are much warmer than they ever used to be. And that's providing increased fuel to make these hurricanes much stronger and much bigger more often than they have been in the past. And that's impacting my state. And you'll see it because I'm starting to ramble, but let me try and and add this one point and then we can go back to you. Uh, A lot of the climate debate is polarized on partisan lines. So you have the Democrats who are are championing climate action more and you have the Republicans who are opposing climate action more. That's a broad stereotype. There are lots of exceptions. I think it's changing, particularly now we're seeing a, a huge amount of bipartisan openness towards these issues because they're impacting states like mine. I'm in Florida. It's a Republican state with a Republican governor who has made climate action part of his agenda, including strengthening our seed, uh, our um, shoreline defenses in a lot of major cities and addressing a lot of the increased flooding that we're seeing in our major cities because of rising sea levels uh, and vulnerability to storms. So when it gets to that point, the problem with climate change is when it gets to this point, um, it's a bit late to prevent these impacts from happening. There's a lag. In other words, we're already committed or we're already baked in to a certain level of impact because of the warming that we're experiencing. And so we really have to be a little more proactive if we want to prevent worse impacts down the road. It's hard, though, to, yeah. to be proactive when you don't see it happening yet. Right. And, and so, th- I mean, this is probably such a stupid observation that, yeah, I just want to make it just to get clarity. So when you said, you know, in some parts of the world, it's it's warming, some parts are really warming, some parts may be cooling. That's why the phrase global warming is not accurate. Climate change is a better term. Yeah, it's not, it's not that everywhere is about. all it's all just on a straight trajectory towards warming. It's more it's 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 more radical changes that are happening. Right. Absolutely. Okay. And that's why it's hard to understand this issue if you're not studying it. It is right. very complicated. And with all the voices out there, it's hard to make sense of what's really going on. So global warming is a, is a term that gets used because overall, the planet is warming. Okay. Overall. Okay. But a lot of people will use the term climate disruption or Catherine Hayhoe used to, Dr. Hayhoe used to refer to global weirding because it, it kind of helps point out that 
depending on where you are, you might experience very different impacts or effects than someone in another part of the world or even someone in another part of your country. Some parts are getting drier. Some parts mm. are getting wetter. It's a very complicated, interconnected system. And when you start to tweak with parts of it, then everything sort of starts to shuffle around. Got it. Going back to the human. So, so we're and when I say there's consensus, of course, there's always going to be, you know, there's not. There's not consensus that the earth is round, okay? So, I mean, obviously, there's going to be somebody somewhere, but <laughs> sure. there's a large general consensus that humans are contributing on some level to climate change. What are some some of the top things humans have done that are contributing to climate change? Um, yeah, sure. Well, the leading cause of uh, climate change right now is uh, carbon dioxide gas. Okay. Uh, but methane, for instance, is another important greenhouse gas is what we call them. And we call them greenhouse gases because what they do is they, they rise. We emit them through human activities, such as the burning of fossil fuels. Um, and, the, um, and then, of course, we also have a, a negative effect when we, for instance, cut down forests because forests sequester forests suck up carbon. And they produce oxygen. And so when we cut down forests, we're, we're releasing carbon into the atmosphere as well. Uh, and so the, the total effect of all of this is to, the way it's often explained is these gases play a really important role in the atmosphere by providing a blanket around the earth that keeps us at a, at a happy, healthy temperature. And what we're doing by human activity uh, primarily the burning of fossil fuels uh, and development, you know, construction, all these other activities is that we're increasing the emissions into the atmosphere, reducing the amount that the earth sucks up and thereby thickening the blanket that covers us, thus retaining heat and making us really hot. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. And that is that, is that, that's caused by like factories, by cars, by like, if we, if we, if we got rid of every gas powered vehicle in the world, would that drastically make a huge difference or would that not make a huge difference? Or like, what, what are the main things that are releasing carbon right. into the... Yeah, that would make a very significant difference. I don't know if that's feasible. I don't right. think... I, I've not seen any serious proposals that we would stop people from driving cars. I have seen serious proposals about how we can electrify our vehicle fleets and then generate electricity from clean sources or cleaner sources so that they do produce less pollution. Okay. Uh, but the fact is, by living on this planet, we are going to have an impact on it. We consume right. resources. We produce waste. It's the rate at which we're doing that that is unsustainable. And so we have to figure out how to do it uh, better. But yeah, um, buildings, concrete, roads, all of those things make a difference. Flying makes a difference. Cars and vehicles make a difference. Um, and, and then now I'm starting to get into very shaky territory where I know general ideas <laughs> and I'm out of my um, particular research expertise. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there is, so the, the, there is, a, and this is where I, yeah, I've, I've heard through just various interviews and podcasts and stuff, differences of opinion on how much of a crisis this is and what is the best response and will humans um, adapt? I think is the, the way I hear people talk about it that, you know, I think the one extreme view is like in, in 12 years, the world's going to explode or, you know, all the way to like, there's gonna be a slow gradual change over the next hundred years but we will slowly ad adapt like it's not like you know population will slowly move to p places where are more inhabitable 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 whatever like we'll we'll, we'll respond <laughs> like we always do humans yeah. are resilient and stuff mm -hmm. so um is that i mean am i is that i'm just trying to draw on memory right now if those are some of the debates yeah and, okay. Yeah, absolutely. And the reality is we're already having to adapt and some places okay. have to adapt more than others. And that's where this becomes a, a justice, a an issue of biblical okay. justice, because a lot of the people who are producing the, the most carbon pollution or climate pollution are the people who are being impacted the least or have the most resources to pay for the cost of adaptation. So when you have, for instance, millions of people in Bangladesh living on floodplains yeah. and floods are getting worse and increasing, that's they, they're not the ones producing most of the pollution, but they are bearing some very heavy impacts of it. And they don't have the resource. They're already trying to get by day to day. They don't have the resources to up and move their communities. And so that becomes a real issue because it's not just about how much we will change, but as you alluded to, how fast some of these changes will happen. And we're already 
the science scientists are by and large a very cautious, skeptical bunch because they're very careful. They ne- we never want to be proven wrong. And so we're very careful before we ever make any definitive claims. It takes forever. So science itself tends to be, when it's done right, it tends to be a pretty conservative enterprise. And so what we're seeing now overall is we're seeing things happening faster than many um predictions had suggested in the past. And that's, you know, that's a cause for alarm, of course. This episode is sponsored by Abide. Okay, so there's two things true in my life. I love studying the Bible and I'm constantly battling stress and lack of sleep. So that's why I'm excited about Abide. Abide is the number one Christian meditation app and it has all kinds of features from meditations that read scripture to uh, devotional thoughts and prayers to many different soothing sounds that just help you to relax while staying focused on God's word. Abide is an immersive experience where you can improve your mental health while improving your biblical literacy. So download the Abide app today and find peace in the midst of chaos. If you subscribe right now, you can receive 25% off your first year when you sign up for the premium subscription by texting the promo code theology to the number 22433. Okay, so text 22433 and type in theology to get 25% off your first year. So sleep better, pray more, and meditate on God's life-changing word with Abide. Hey friends, at this year's Exiles in Babylon conference, we have a bunch of organizations sponsoring the event, and I want to highlight a few sponsors that I think are doing really, really great work for the kingdom. Uh, First of all, David C. Cook. That's the publisher that I've been publishing with for a long time now. Uh, Denver Seminary, one of my favorite seminaries. You've heard me talk about them a lot on the podcast. One Million Home is doing some awesome work with orphan care. So if you care about orphans, and you should, (laughs) check out One Million Home. And Rockbridge Seminary. This is a seminary that I've recently come across that I love their emphasis on training of men and women for servant leadership in ministry. These are organizations that really resonate with the Theology in the Raw vibe, and they wanted to come out and sponsor the Exiles Conference. So if you're attending the conference here in Boise, stop by their booth and say hi, and hopefully they'll have some like candy and chocolate sitting out like they often do. So um, check out what they're all about. That's uh, Rockbridge Seminary, One Million Home, David C. Cook, and Denver Seminary. You can go to rockbridge.edu denverseminary.edu, 1millionhome.com, or davidccook.org. I've heard that like, even if all the kind of developed countries, the developed world, you know, recycled, drove electric vehicles, had, you know, laws against carbon admission, the developing world, or, you know, even like places in China or Africa, or maybe, maybe, no, India, I think is actually... I don't, I don't know. Um, like, is that, is that, is there something to that, that, that some of the countries that are actually producing most of these emissions and are not, you know, they're still burning tires and doing stuff that's like, they're not, you know, it's not like they're like conscious about environmental concerns. Is that, is that, a, it's a true, uh, assessment or is that an overstatement? Yeah. Russia works in a number of these places. Um, so for instance, China is the world's largest polluter overall at the moment. Uh, but not too long ago, it was the U.S. for a long time was oh, the wow. world's largest polluter. When you look at it per capita, we are still larger polluters than China per capita. Uh, and America is the number two leading polluter in the world. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it's not that we don't have dirt on our hands. And really, before we look for the speck of dust in our neighbor's eye, maybe we should take okay. Jesus's advice and, and try to find a plank in our own. Because until we remove the plank from our own, we won't even, I mean, never mind the moral credibility, we won't even be have, have the ability to see how to help uh, the rest of the world remove the specks from their eyes. So one of the great challenges is we have developed um, by depleting a lot of resources around the world and producing a lot of pollution that we're paying for now as a global community. Uh, and we're developed and we've gotten ahead on the backs of a lot of our neighbors around the world. And to then turn around to them and say, oh, you can't develop likewise uh, is pretty hypocritical. Huh. And I'm not sure as a Christian how I, I feel good about that. I think what we want to do is we want to say, OK, we, we developed this way. We didn't know the impacts of what we were doing, at least not all of them when we were doing them. Um, but look, we know so much more now. So how can we come together and help you develop 
in ways that are sustainable for your communities as well as for your human communities as well as for our natural communities in the world. But that's why these issues are why climate change is often a classic example of uh, what academics refer to as a wicked problem, mm-hmm. where there's no one single source of the problem mm-hmm. and there's no one straightforward solution to the problem. Mm-hmm. It's so interconnected and diffuse that it, it takes a lot of work to sort through. And like you said, there's some real, there's like realistic solutions and non-realistic, like saying, all right, we're going to cancel air flight and sure. gas powered cars. Like, uh, yeah, but is that really, are we really going to be rowing boats around the world? And like, I just don't see that as a realistic solution. And yeah, I, I, I also don't want to discount stuff just because, well, that's not realistic. It's like, well, I don't know. Like it's a hard tension. Right. But, um, I guess my, here's my, that wasn't even my question. Like, what are some things that Arasha or you just other, maybe other orgs have done yeah, where you're yeah. like, hey, th- this is making a difference. If more people did X, Y, and Z, this is realistic. It's actually, um, if more and more people did it, it would actually make a difference in human contribution to climate change. Like, what are some, what are some of those things? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a big question. There's lots of things I could say here again, <laughs> but maybe I'll start by um, stepping back and saying, a lot of things aren't realistic until we do them. And then all of a sudden they become realistic and the pace of change is moving incredibly fast these days. So for instance, the clean energy economy and clean energy technologies are far outpacing, are starting to become even more competitive than the old technologies that we had that were fossil fuel based. And so for me, from a big picture perspective, it's not so much will we get to a, uh, an economy, a world where we're relying much more on clean energy than on, on forms of dirty energy. Yeah, we're going to get there. I mean, already uh, wind is more cost, produ- cost effective than uh, wind and solar are more cost effective than coal and oil in a lot of places. The question is, how long will it take us to get there? How fast can we get there? And who stands to lose in that transition, including, you know, who are some of the people opposing that transition because their business plans stand to lose from that transition? Smart energy companies right now are rebranding and are are rebranding as not oil companies or coal companies, but as energy companies. And they're investing in clean energy technology. So, okay, that's big picture stuff. We're going to get there. It's a matter of how quickly and what impacts do we face um, before we do or, or in, in the way to get there? On the more maybe local personal level, you know, Arasha, um, we're not the ones who are going to save the world, but we follow the God who is. And so really what it comes down to us is faithfulness. How can we be faithful to God and loving the people and places where we live? And so um, for us, that looks a lot. And in many places, it's hands-on conservation projects where we're protecting habitats, where we're providing for sustainable livelihoods for communities, like on the coast of Kenya, where a lot of deforestation is spurred uh, because people then take the wood and turn it into charcoal to sell in order to provide school fees for their kids to go to school, which is a ticket out of poverty. And so what Arasha Kenya has been doing for a number of years now is it has created um, ecotourism opportunities so that, that, that employ the local community so that now they're able to benefit from protecting the forest instead of having to, in a much longer term vision, instead of having to deforest today in order to provide for the kids tomorrow, but then running out of forest in the very near future. So that's one example. But like in um, in the UK, another uh, example comes from uh, the outskirts of London, a neighborhood called, called South Hall, which had a big brownfield site in the middle, which was a, basically a dumping ground in the middle of this urban neighborhood which was largely populated by recent immigrants from South Asia and other parts of the the world. And a group of Christians got together and they said, we want to bless our community and we want to uh, talk to the neighbors and realize it'd be really nice if we had um, a green space in the middle of our community instead of a dumping ground. And so they worked together to to restore that site. And it's now Minette Country Park. You can visit it. It's recorded over 100 species of birds. It's used for community events, environmental education events, running, walking, playing in the playgrounds. So it's showing the love of God and the good news of God in the very places that we live. Uh, And of course, you could talk about individual change. I mean, we could just go on and on and on. There's so much we can do here. But I'll I'll stop there for now. (laughs) But I I can imagine each one of those seems like such a tiny, tiny dent in this huge problem. But... I would imagine you would say, well, yeah, but if more and more people 
pursue those things, then it's no longer a tiny dent. It's a bigger dent and a bigger, you know, yeah. um, I just, just came to my mind right now. What, what, what about what's, what are the role that like plastics play in this? I, I never understood that. Is that oh, unrelated man. to like, in like the greenhouse gases or is it somehow related? Is it? Yeah, um, sure. Plastic is a petroleum product. So yeah, it, uh, it, it certainly plays a role. And of course, um, as we know, it, it doesn't ever go away or it goes away so slowly that we'll never really see it go away when uh, when you throw it out. It just lasts for a long time. So no, plastic's a huge part of the problem. And it's a big part of uh, what Arasha is working on through its marine conservation program. So for instance, in the United States, in Florida and in Southern California, Arasha has a, a marine conservation work going on studying microplastics, uh, both in terms of these um, little plastic pieces that wash up on beaches, but also that get taken up in organisms and enter our food chains. And, uh-huh. and you know, we end up consuming little bits of plastic. And so Arash is helping to study the prevalence and effects of these plastics in some of these areas. Yeah, I was laughing when you asked about plastics because it's February 1st, which is plastic free, plastic free February. So oh, no way. Yeah, okay. you're on to something here. <laughs> <laughs> is there, so I learned somewhere that there is a pile of plastic the size of texas in the middle of the pacific ocean is that yeah it is we've got a lot of this plastic gets washed out of um you know um surface runoff or sewer systems and all and it it ends up in the ocean and it swirls around uh, and these because of the ocean currents it sort of collects in these gyres and swirls around in these huge masses of waste and and i think about that when i think about landfills and i think as god looks at the earth that god made that was good uh and that god blessed and and uh invited to flourish how does god feel about that that yeah because yeah. yeah. and it's not just sitting there inert right it's um it's leaching chemicals but it's also becoming food for sea turtles and other things that then ingest them and stru- and, and suffer and die and Golly, uh, things yeah. like that as well so plastic's a, a huge problem wow I mean, so are you a huge fan of, I mean, recycling? I mean, is that, <laughs> I would assume yes, yeah. but I heard oh. even that somebody told me recently or an article I read that most of our, our, so we have a recycling bin, you know, you throw out, we tried, we do our best, you know, but then someone says, yeah, that doesn't actually end up doing much because it, people on the other end aren't really responsibly disposing of it or something, or I don't know. Is yeah, that, I don't know. Is this, that... this is where this is where I feel for anybody who wants to do what's right and struggles to know the right thing to do, because these issues are far more complicated. Our systems are the way we run our societies and our lifestyles are not sustainable and they were never designed to be sustainable. And so you actually have to go out of your way to understand how to live faithfully yeah. in these contexts. Whereas what we really need to do is reform our systems so that they encourage sustainability so that you actually have to go out of your way to not be sustainable. Uh, and, and that's where we'll actually, I think, um, get a lot further because yeah, recycling is ambiguous in terms of it takes energy. It costs money sometimes for some materials, especially metals. It's certainly worth it almost all the time. Other materials like, Plastic, glass, and paper, it really depends is the answer. That said, I still recycle. I still do it uh, because stewardship is making the best decisions with the best information you have at, at the moment. And so that's what I'm going to do. But that's why we have the you know the mantra everybody knows, reduce, reuse, recycle. Mm-hmm. So first we reduce, then we reuse everything that we can, and only then do we go on to recycling. So if you focus on reduce and reuse, you're going to make a huge amount of progress and then you don't feel as guilty about recycling. I would encourage people not to feel guilty regardless. That's not a good motivation for this work, but but there you go. You know what's funny is, um, I mean, you've lived in different parts of the world. American houses have the biggest trash cans. Like, you, you, <laughs> like when we lived in the UK or even when we go visit other places, we were just in France for a couple months and the tiniest, you have like a tiny little garbage can where all your garbage is supposed to fit. And back in America, we have these huge bins and, and we fill them, you know, but it's just, yeah. we can, like you were saying, we consume, we just consume stuff, right? I mean, is that, it's, and, and until you travel outside the U.S., you don't realize it just, refrigerators are smaller typically and meals are smaller and, yeah. and you're yeah. just not, you're just not, you just don't have as much garbage and you wonder like how do, this would never work in America and I don't know why it wouldn't work because we fill these huge bins every week, you know? Yeah. But one of the, one of the, 
best ways I've reduced my uh, rubbish or trash um, production here in the U.S. is by composting. Um, and you can yeah. compost even without a yard. I have a small yard and I compost. I don't even compost very well. In other words, I don't, I'm not tracking the, the levels of browns versus greens I'm putting in and I'm not mixing my pile up as much as I should. So my compost could be a lot more efficient. I could be getting a lot more soil out of it than I am, or at least a lot quicker. But here's why I do it, because I find when I compost um, all of my uh, produce waste and even things like uh, eggshells and coffee grinds, things like that, I save so much from going to the landfill. And a lot of the stuff that, that will biodegrade in your backyard or in your, you know, if you're in an apartment, you can have these little worm composting bins that are great. I, I have yeah. friends who use those or these little uh, bins that you kind of turn. They're on these rollers and you can kind of turn them. Um, and if you, you do that, then you're just reducing all of that from going to landfills where they don't always biodegrade because it gets, uh, they're sitting in environments without oxygen a lot of the time. And so they kind of become this soup and it's not always the easiest for them to degrade when they're in the landfill. What is, okay, so what's wrong with a landfill? Like, yeah, we have one here in Boise, you go, you take all your garbage up there, mattresses or whatever, you know, sure, um, yeah. and it just, it gets kind of covered up in a big pile and sits there. And I would assume most of it decomposes after a while, maybe plastics a lot longer, but then like, so yeah, so what? So it's sitting out there in a big pile of dirt on the earth. Is that doing harm to the earth? Well, a lot of it actually doesn't uh, decompose. And that's the tough thing. We, we have to set the, we have to design these landfills in ways that don't facilitate <laughs> decomposition. Some of it's the materials themselves. There's a lot of plastic in there. There's other things that take for forever to biodegrade. But we also line them with very thick plastic layers and, and tarps and things to keep the leachate from so all the, the soup or the chemicals that collect from all this garbage that's thrown there from getting into the soil and the groundwater. A number of Superfund sites around the country, Superfund sites are sites, that's a, a name for sites that are particularly heavily polluted. Uh, a number of those sites are former landfill sites where the chemicals from the trash and the landfill have, have either broken out of the linings or the linings um, weren't very good and have fallen apart. Anyway, they've, they've gotten into the soils and they've gotten into our groundwater, which is our drinking water supply. And that, of course, leads to higher rates of cancer in, in places around these sites and other illnesses. And so hmm. they're not, they're, you know, they're, they're, there's, there's no away on this earth. God designed this earth to function, to cycle. And when we kind of break that cycle, a lot of this stuff sits there and there are better ways to handle it, that's for sure. And some landfill sites have been converted to parks, for instance. Uh, but there's uh, there's continuous monitoring. They are there. Are, you'll see these wells drilled all around, uh, and these vents drilled all around, so that first of all, some of the gases that build up in the landfills can escape into the atmosphere, which contributes to global warming, <laughs> but at least gets it out of the landfill. Uh, but then the the wells are drilled around so that they can monitor and make sure that the toxins in the dump aren't escaping into the local communities call it <laughs> that's good yeah it's like the, my learning curve is skyrocketing I, I didn't know any of that um and you're making me feel better about all the education i've had i'm like i actually learned stuff this is yeah, yeah. <laughs> well what about the whole okay here's one that i'm not sure it's been debunked or if it's still a thing like the the uh cows farting and releasing methane gas so that it, if you consume too much meat as a society, like that's contributing to climate change because of you're keeping you're you're needing all these cows to exist to to do that. Is that is that true? Accurate? Yeah, the the beef industry, cattle ranching, does produce significant amounts of um, amounts of these gases. Really? Okay, <laughs> it, it is true. But that's not all that's true. And that's uh, often not what I think of the most when I think of um, the beef industry and a lot of other problems that come from large scale beef production uh, include things like deforestation in the Amazon, okay. where large swaths of Amazon rainforests are being cut down to make space for cattle ranching, not just cattle ranching, other agriculture. But that has the effect of, uh, you know, these these are hugely uh, biodiverse rich areas that we're losing, mm -hmm. um, but it also brings in a lot of pollution, uh, produces a lot of waste, and degrades that 
landscape for years to come. Uh, at the same time, of course, that we're removing uh, that patch of forest from being able to suck up more of the carbon dioxide that's being produced. So it's kind of a, a double whammy in, in that sense. Interesting. Okay. And there are huge indigenous people's rights uh, issues there, too, with a lot of illegal ranching going on uh, at the expense of local tribes and communities that are living on that land and are being pushed out uh, and persecuted very violently sometimes in order for these these ranchers to to take the land from them and use. So if I'm curious, if, if you were going to create like you just somebody crowned you king over <laughs> some 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 big island or something like that, you have you have a, a self-contained society. <laughs> um, what would be a realistic like so don't like can't ban cars or whatever, like just like what would be a realistic way in which a society could play a significant role in addressing I mean, not just climate change, but just being environmentally responsible. Like, what are some big picture things? Like, what would it be like you wouldn't be eating a lot of meat? You wouldn't get rid of all cows, but it would be like drastically reduced. Would would you get rid of gas powered, you know, cars or like what would what would a realistic society look like? <laughs> well, it, realistically, the first thing I would do is resign as king because, <laughs> because I don't have that level of confidence in my ability to design the society that you just described. Um, but we do have a lot of expertise out there. Um, so yeah, I think some of the things you mentioned, sure. Um, I, I am not a vegetarian, but I do try to reduce and limit my meat consumption in line with the rest of the world. Uh, or like at least much of the rest of the world that I'm, I've uh, come from and spent time in. Um, and I drive a car that isn't an electric car right now, partly because I am trying to use it for as long as I can before I get a new car. And that's often a much environmentally, a much better environmental decision to make, to use what you have as long as you can uh, before you replace it with something new that costs a lot of resources to produce. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it would be lovely to, to see if we can, if we're at the point where if we were to design a little community on a little island, we could just start with electric vehicles and start with solar panels and start with wind turbines, start with, um, it depends on the island and, and what the, how much the sun shines, how much the wind blows or whether there are geothermal opportunities. There are so many possibilities, but here's mm. the first thing I would do. The, well, let's hope the first thing I would do is pray. <laughs> but here's, <laughs> once I got done praying, here's uh, some of the first things I would do. I would set out to understand what lived on the island and how it flourished when I, you know, to, to start with. I would basically, I would build a relationship with the rest of creation around me and seek to understand it. Because as one of my other friends, I think this comes from Stephen Baumer Prediger, puts it, we will not care for what we do not love and we will not love what we do not know. Mm -hmm. And so first I would try to get to know and encourage us to get to know the place uh, and then we would, as we got to know it, would try to figure out, all right, what's the best way to be image bearers of God in this setting? What would be the best way to live out God's values and, and um, bear witness to this kingdom of shalom, this kingdom of peace and flourishing and justice for all? Uh, and, and then I would set about trying to do that. But it can't happen. It's not, it's not a technical fix, you know, because it's not at the heart a technical problem. At the heart, I believe our environmental issues today are sin problems, and therefore we, what we're looking for is a solution to sin, and that's why I keep going mm. back to Christ. Sin problem like, I mean, overconsumption or profits over people, I mean, those kind of things. I mean, not caring about the other. Like, I mean, if you built a huge business, whatever, and yet that's negatively affecting maybe some other countries around the world for whatever reason, like that's not good, mm. you know, even if you have a kind of veneer of even like a Christian kind of business. It's like, well, what's, what's, what are the deep roots of your success? And is that, is that actually loving your neighbor? Um, I read a great book called everyday justice a long time ago. Yeah. But it just, it just, it kind of blew my mind about how just even our day-to-day -day choices are just so deeply rooted in our global economy, even, you know, and just at least being, and it was, a, it was a greatly balanced book. It wasn't just a scolding book, but it was just like, yeah. you know, just, just, being more aware of, of kind of our choices and how they impact the globe. Speaking of which, yeah, somebody listening, like what, what, what are some practical things that the average person can do that, that again, are, are maybe realistic, but you know, are, are just conscious of, you know, living a, a holistically just uh, life. Sure. 
again, lots I could say here. Uh, maybe I would start by saying, uh, well, maybe stop and pray. Ask God to show us the ways that we're impacting those around us, including God's creation. Uh, we all have an impact, both good and bad. And then start to think about the ways that we can some describe as shrink our environmental footprints or reduce the negative impacts we have, but then also think about ways we can increase our environmental handprint or increase our the positive impacts that we have on the, the planet and the, the people who live on it. So think about it both ways. Get involved with a group like Arasha so that you're not doing this alone. So much of this is confusing some mm-hmm. uh, and it can be overwhelming and you can it can be discouraging, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And it's much better to do with, with other people and with other uh, people uh, from the family of God. And, and when you do that along the way, you'll find people with great expertise in all manner of areas so that whenever you think, oh, I do not understand that. What do I need to do or how do I do that? Then you'll be better able to know where to look for good answers, uh, mm-hmm. not just you know answers from people with opinions, but answers from people who know and understand these things. The reason mm-hmm. I called this um, a sin problem is uh, one of the great definitions for sin that I, I lean on a lot is anything. Sin is anything that violates God's shalom. So anything that violates the flourishing and the peace, or biblically speaking, the right relationship that we are called to have with ourselves, with each other, with God, with the rest of creation. And so that's how I like to approach it. I think, what are the ways I can have uh, a healthier, a better, a more right relationship with God, the rest of creation, my neighbors, myself, and how can I be less of a curse and more of a blessing, which is what we were created to be. Um, So those are some of the ways I would start. One more thing maybe I would throw in there, because this is a, a, I, I really long for the day where the church in the United States in particular, um, and it's it's rapidly approaching, but we're not there yet, where caring for God's creation is no longer that biblical, theological, discipleship blind spot that it has become in the last 50 or 100 years, where we all understand that, no, this is part of what God has put us on this earth to do and be, and where we get on with figuring out how to do it together. I bet Satan just absolutely loves it that some of these have become political debates so that Christians that are, you know, (laughs) yeah, nursing from a particular media outlet will find themselves, their allegiance to their political tribe drives their commitment either to or against certain climate change debates rather than starting with the foundation of what does God think and how can I, you know, live a, a holistically just life. Mm-hmm. What you said, getting involved with Arasha, what, what are some things, how, how, how could people get involved? What does that look like? Um, go ahead. Yeah. Promote, promote Arasha for a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, um, uh, if you're in the United States, then Arasha has a national organization in the U S you can check out the website, Arasha, A-R-O-C-H-A dot U-S. Or if you're in another country, Arasha's also got a large uh, presence in Canada, for instance. Uh, but if you're in another country or want to see what's going on around the world, just go to arasha.org, A-R-O-C-H-A.org, and you'll see a map and a drop-down menu with all the work that we're doing in all these different countries. And what I, I'd encourage folks to do that anyway, because Arasha has always, even before I was on staff, so you know, you could say, well, now I'm getting paid to say this. No, for Years now, I have been so encouraged by the work that God is doing through the church around the world and by the witness that um, Arasha has been able to have in some very tough places. And and that's given me inspiration and creativity to think about my own yard, my own home, my own neighborhood, my own church. So uh, and in all of that, Arasha can come alongside and and be part of that. We've got lots of resources like a plastics toolbox for people who want to know how to Hmm. how to deal with plastic, reduce plastic uh, use, and also how to study microplastics and, and things like that. We've got um, in the U.S., we have a Wild Wonder VBS curricula for churches. It's got three years now written and very, very popular with the churches that use it to help um, get their kids out into nature during the summer VBS uh, season and could go on and on. In the U.K., for instance, there's Eco Church, which is um, – it's their um, kind of church creation care scheme. Well, that's that's a weird word in the U.S. In the, in the U.K., it's used a lot. It's a, it's a church program in the in the U.K. 
and uh, over 5,000 churches across the UK are part of Eco Church. Wow. So there's just so much depending mm. on where people are at and what their what their spheres of influence are that you can do through Arasha. Do you guys have like internships and stuff that people can do? Yeah. Or, yeah? yeah. No, I'm glad you said that. Um, so there are different field centers around the world, Arasha communities, where people can go and live in Christian community and be part of conservation work. Uh, around them. And so it's in places like Kenya, India, Portugal, France, Canada. So folks can go and volunteer and intern there. Arasha Canada has an extensive internship program. Um, and in the U.S., uh, they have a slightly newer internship program, but it's off to a great start and it runs in Florida. So if anyone really wants an excuse to spend a, a much of a year down in Florida, yeah. Uh, that internship even comes with funding. So that's a paid one. Wow. That's all awesome. my, my daughter would absolutely, she's very environmentally conscious and, and loves learning about it. She's like, a uh, wants to go into kind of videography. So she wants to like tell stories oh, about various causes and stuff. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pass it. She, yeah, I think she would. Yeah. I think she'll definitely look into it. So, Hey, uh, Ben, thanks so much for being on theology and raw, giving us so much to think about and, uh, you love bet. your heart, love your humility and wisdom and, Man, yeah, you uh, yeah, you really provoked a lot of my own thinking. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been great. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.